Well, good morning, everyone. It's very good to see you. Happy to be back in Itasca County. If you have your Bibles, drum roll, please. <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 3, page 818. Actually, we're going to spend verse 6, so it'll be the bottom of 817, and we're going to read from verse 6 to the end of 2 Corinthians 3. If you don't have a Bible, that page would be 817 and 818 in your seat Bibles. I can't thank you enough for the time that was given to my family and I these past two weeks. We thank God and we certainly thank you. It was a really nice time. We were always as grateful as we can be to God for um, his goodness and just to be able to do what we did for those um, 13, 14 plus days. Let's hear the word of the Lord this morning, verse 6. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull for to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's bow together as we pray. And Satan tempts us to despair and reminds us of the guilt within. Upward we look and see him there who made an end to all our sin. Because the sinless Savior died, our sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me and all who believe. Now, Father, please do for us now what we are unable to do for ourselves, and please give to us more than we think we may need. For it is in Jesus' name and for his sake alone that we humbly ask these things. Amen. Now, as I said, I'm fresh off a two-week leave, which is always dangerous. I am thankful to be back and certainly very thankful for your prayers and your kind texts and your emails that we received while my family and I were resting in the Republic of Texas. And yeah, those of you who've ever been to Texas and know exactly what I mean. 
And one of the opportunities that was provided for us while on our summer break was to visit the Art Museum of South Texas, which is in Corpus Christi, which sits right off Corpus Christi Bay, which is connected to the Gulf of Mexico, which was absolutely breathtaking. And of course, the works of art themselves were breathtaking, and we enjoyed them thoroughly. We even enjoyed dessert. We ate at a cafe that was adjacent to the museum. I had to move up a few notches on the, my low street, high street level. And the dessert that was given to us uh, provided some liberation for me because, I, as always, I go through the museum far too quickly. I think I was at least two rooms ahead of everybody because the family is much more refined than I am. However, being in the museum, I was um, motivated and inspired to look for some 16th century artwork from the reform period. Yeah, and if you believe that, then, you know, I've got some oceanfront property in Arizona that I want to sell you after church. But I was looking for some art. I was looking for some art concerning Martin Luther and his conversion. I'd seen it before in other places, in other museums, actually, and it's really beautiful. It's breathtaking, if you would. But of course, I didn't see anything about Luther at the museum, and I was kind of disappointed because I wanted to come back with some pictures for you to see But as I discovered that something you can't do at this particular museum is you can't take pictures of the pictures in the museum. So I was introduced to that fact by the legal system in the museum. (laughs) And besides the fact that I almost get incarcerated on my vacation because of that little picture mishap, I was kind of disappointed because I did want to see something of Luther. Because I had Luther in mind from the help of a few other friends when I came to this passage in 2 Corinthians 3 that I've been wanting to speak from for some time. Because it was Luther in 1511 who visited Rome not on a holiday, but rather on a holy search. He visited Rome out of some kind of spiritual torment. He said, and I'm quoting Luther now, I was hoping to find a way to unburden my soul. However, in Rome, he spent four weeks in zealous religious service on a kind of religious pilgrimage with a high point of having the high hopes that the climb up the stairs of the church of St. John Lateran, which were the stairs that were said to have been the original stairs that led up to Pilate's house in Jerusalem, which were said to be the stairs that our Lord walked on and stood on and probably fell on at his trial, which were the stairs that were said to have the very blood of the Lord Jesus Christ on them, the Scala Santa, the holy stairs. And the custom of that day was that one would crawl on their knees, praying as they went, kissing each blood-stained step, that while they did that, God would somehow grant remission of sins and a person would either become right or become even more right with God. But this did nothing good to him and nothing for him as there is never a speck of God's power in religious, superstitious, I'll call it hoo-ha. And there is never a speck of God's power in religious devotion void of Christ's work at Calvary as a means to be right or to be made even more right with God. So as you would expect, this only worked to extend his sense of frustration, to extend his sense of hopelessness and his angst. Because as a religious man who at this time was a distinguished monk, he was working under this maxim. And essentially it said this, that a good God is sure to accept a good man doing the very best that he can. And a good God would love a good man even more doing all that he might. 
But all that line of thinking did was increase his anguish. The more he tried, the more he failed, and he began to more and more, as a religious man and as a monk, hate God. That's his own words. So he left Rome, sorely disappointed, a few bucks lighter, and with a big question. The big question that he thought could be answered on the you know, the spiritual pilgrimage, but was not, was this. How could a man or a woman know that they had done enough to be right and stay right with God? Let me say that again. How can a man or a woman know that they had done enough to be right and stay right with God? Now, that's not an uncommon question, especially for those of us who think that getting saved is just like a one step of a multiple step God project and are willing to travel the globe and empty our wallets to somehow secure God's love, to secure God's favor, or get a better inside track than the rest of us poor saps who can't go along those lines. Because if you're thinking along those lines, and if you're thinking the way that I'm thinking, then the question that I came up with was this. How in the world could a devout religious man such as he was, a man who was on the honor roll every semester at monk school, a man that did religious discipline better than most of us here, beginning with myself. After all that religious devotion, still have no deep sense of experience with, a settled sense of peace with, and a sensible relationship with a living God who he could not yet call Father, but yet was the single-minded focus of his whole life. How in the world could that happen? Because most of us would look at a person like this from the outside looking in and go, you know, wow, we, well, you might not say wow, we, I would say wow, we are, you know, whoa, how in the world, right? You look at a guy like that, most of us would think that when he gets out of bed, he would be the guy to be fire out, look in the mirror and go, this is the day the Lord has made, I'm rejoicing, I'm glad in it, you know, and say, bam, not like the most of us who just can, you know, we just kind of roll out of bed and we go, here we go again, right? Most of us would think that a religious person such as Luther, who by all accounts knew his Bible at a powerful intellectual level, would surely understand what Paul is trying to say to us here in 2 Corinthians 3. Now, if your Bibles are open, and I hope for your benefit that they are open, the sixth verse opens that door for the reader of Paul. And Paul immediately says to us that not only does his competence come from Christ, but this ministry also comes from Christ, and it is the ministry of the new covenant. So he says he's a servant or a minister of the new covenant. Now in this, you might think that this is just a nice way for Paul to identify himself to his readers, or maybe just some kind of Bible filler, you know, for decorum. And until you begin to think things through, Paul was sent by Christ, by the will of God, chapter 1, verse 1 of this letter. And as an apostle, Paul has Christ's authority. So he is our example and he is our authority in ministry. He, Paul, because of Christ, he sets the paces for ministry. And the only actual ministry is the ministry of the new covenant. And all this simply means is that every ministry that is unleashed into the world through the church in Jesus' name begins with, ends with, and relies on the new covenant, which is just a synonym for the gospel. And this means the believers in God's church are to be organized for worldliness. Worldliness, you say? You say, he's been too gone, far, you know, he's been gone too long on vacation. We are to be organized for worldliness, not as in bad behavior, but worldliness in taking the good news of Christ's redeeming love to the world. The Christian community then is very, very far from its paces whenever it wanders from this new covenant ministry. 
In other words, the foundation of every talk that Paul took to the church and to the streets and to the world. Now listen very carefully. The foundation of every talk that he took to political leaders, such as Felix and Drusilla and Agrippa, the foundation of the talks that he took to the crowds, to everyone all the time, was essentially only this. God offers to you free forgiveness of your sins through the suffering and death of another, and his name is Christ. In your place condemned Christ stood so that he brings to you his righteousness because you cannot create a righteousness to keep you with God and bring you to God. You need this righteousness so then choose Christ's righteousness because the time is coming when it will be too late. And isn't it interesting that as an apostle, Paul never pronounced God's judgment on his home country specifically, as so many are prepared to do in our day. He spoke in judgment generally, but he never spoke to a specific nation specifically. In fact, if you want to be real technical about it, Peter says, 1 Peter 4, 17, it's time for God's judgment to begin, but it's to begin with God's own family. Now, in thinking about the new covenant, I think it's wonderful of providence that we're going to be celebrating communion this particular Sunday because in communion in a very obvious way we'll understand exactly what the Bible means when we speak of new covenant because we're going to read the words of Jesus this morning and this is what Jesus says this cup is the cup representing the new covenant the new covenant in my blood this cup declares if you like the door of possibility is now open the only way that that door can be open between a holy God and sinful men and women. And the only way that door can be opened is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, this is an open door, not between two equals, never. But this is an open door of possibility because of God. We sing in here all the time, but as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. And then the refrain, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. What in the world is that? Well, it's a hymn, but it's the new covenant. And it is every genuine Christian's story. And so the distinction between old and new is what Paul is doing in these verses again and again. The new covenant then begins in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark that. And because of this, the new covenant did not obligate men and women to keep external rules, to keep regulations, to keep certain diets, to keep national or local tastes or local mindsets to be ordered in order to be right with God. On the contrary, the new covenant calls men and women to agree to take the sacrifice that Jesus has made on the cross as the singular means whereby men and women who by nature are enemies of God, who by nature alienated from God, might become now the children of God, the friends of God, if you like, the people of God. Because the ministry that brings righteousness, verse 9, is a ministry that says the just will live by faith. Not just saved by faith, but live by faith. Faith in the fact that the very righteousness God requires cannot be achieved by us. It must be given to us. And in these verses, Paul moves us from the old, which is absolute, absolute, excuse me, to the new, which is permanent and absolutely wonderful. 
So in the interest of brevity, I've gathered my thoughts under two headings. If you have the worship folder, you can turn to the back there and you'll see old and new, old covenant, new covenant. One brings death, the other brings righteousness. And under each heading, as you can see, there's a few sub points. So our first heading, quick, heading quickly now, is the old covenant. Now in coming to the old covenant, we can't do what so many do immediately and treat it like calamari, which is squid which I ate on vacation, which I absolutely love. It was wonderful. The old covenant sometimes people think is bad and the new covenant is good. We ought not to think that way because God was the one who gave us the old covenant. And it's important that we understand this. I've said this many times before. There's not a different kind of God in the Old Testament and a much nicer version of God in the new. That somehow from Genesis to Malachi, it's all law and rules. And from Matthew's gospel on, it's all grace. No, an actual fact, it is all grace, the grace of God in creation. The fact that we even exist is a grace, the grace of God in choosing a people, the grace of God in the law, which tells us exactly what standard God requires, and the grace of God then which points to our dilemma, and the grace of God which provides the Lord Jesus Christ as the only answer to that dilemma that is presented to us. Now, We have to understand that the new covenant is not given to us then as something right replacing something wrong. Rather, it is the replacement of something incomplete, the old covenant, to the complete, the new covenant. Now, if you don't understand that, what will happen is what probably happens too many times when someone tries to actually teach or preach from the Old Testament, you get a bunch of gobbledygook because they don't connect the old to the new And so it doesn't make any sense. So either the person eventually says what they like, says what is wrong, says what we, that they think that we need to hear, or says what is trending on social and general media and try to make a sermon out of that, which is never really wise. So what the old covenant did was bring to us in three words. It brought to us the first word, death, verse seven. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone. So if you know your Bible, most of you do, I'm sure, you'll know that Moses came down from the mountain and he came down with the Ten Commandments. Commandments, not suggestions. In my files, USA Today, most people in America can only name five. And most think that the Ten Commandments are something we should strive for and nothing more. But when you look at your Bible, in actual fact, it is God's law. And it's God's law given to us in 10 striking statements. And as a result of those statements, anyone who's prepared to be honest can see that if the only way to be put right with God is by perfect obedience to these 10 commandments, then we are in massive trouble. Now, when God gave us his law, he didn't give it to us to kind of like corner us and say, aha, you know, I got you, you rascal. He didn't give it to us so that we'd make it impossible for us to gain eternal life. No, he gave us his law because he loves us. And his law flawlessly reflects his nature and his character. And it reveals to us, listen carefully, those of you that are always on the will of God search, the law perfectly reveals exactly what God wants. It's beautiful. So that's why God doesn't want us to have hearts that are always jealous and envious of others. He doesn't want us to lie to each other. He doesn't want us to cheat one another. He wants us to obey our moms and dads. He wants to be honored on the first day as the most significant thing in that day in a unique way. And as he has said, he is to be first and best 
every other day as well. And so God's law, God's law shows us what it means to restrain our lives to God's fixed points given to us in these 10 commandments. But even as I say that, the impossibility of being good enough should be clear enough if the law is understood enough to know that we are disobedient. And this disobedience, the Bible says, brings punishment. And the punishment that God said that is decreed because of our disobedience is death. The punishment is avoidable, even though our inability to keep God's correct standard in this flesh is unavoidable. So to try and make ourselves right with God or to stay right with God by the old covenant, getting your list and going for it, to try to either do it or make ourselves feel better about ourselves, that's an old street. And it actually puts us on what the Bible would call a dead-end street. The dead-end street that says, I can do it. Just give me enough time and give me another go at it, and I can do it. The Old Covenant brought death. Second word, the Old Covenant brought condemnation. Verse 9, if the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious. So right off the bat, you should be seeing the limits of the law. The law could not make men and women be righteous. Therefore, it would always lead to condemnation. Now, it's like a stop sign. I did way too much driving on the vacation, and, and all my mm, driving issues just blare, <laughs> just blare out. But I thank God for stop signs, because the people are supposed to stop at stop signs, even in Texas. So in a way, stop signs are glorious. People like me love them. You've got to stop. You've got to stop, because in my mind, I always think they're not going to stop, and that's how I'm going way number four. I'm going to die. It's going to be one of those. So the law... The stop sign is glorious, but it can't make you stop. It can't get in there and make you stop. Or it's like a wet paint sign that says, don't touch wet paint. And most of us come out with fingers that look, you know, aqua blue or whatever. So condemnation then comes to a person realizing that they can't always stop, that they want to touch the sign. And if there is a God, and there is, And if God has spoken in unconditional terms concerning his standard, and he has, and if God demands perfect obedience to his standard, and he certainly does, and if we do not always keep that righteous standard at any point in our existence, we stand condemned. So what in the world are we supposed to do? So the redemptive or saving purpose of the old covenant was to hem us in, to call us out, probably quiet us down and let us see ourselves what we are apart from Christ. Condemned. So many of us would be helped if when we spoke to the world about righteousness that we remember not just the old covenant but also the new covenant. And for those of us maybe who need help to say I have no more excuses It is not my parents. It is not my location. It is not my setting in life. It is not my intellect. It is not my lack of dollars or cents or cents. It's not him. It's not her. It's not them. It is me. Guilty, helpless, lost were we. Blameless lamb of God was he. Sacrificed to set us free. Hallelujah. What a savior. Verse 7, the old covenant brought death. Verse 9, it brought condemnation. Thirdly, the old covenant brought despair. 
We shouldn't be surprised. Death and condemnation. Remember that old hee-haw song, doom, despair, and agony on me? That's the old covenant. And so verse 12, if you're looking at verse 12, therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. You'll see that the word despair is not actually in verse 12, but it is there inferentially because what's the opposite of hope? Well, the opposite of hope in my dictionary is despair. Now, what Paul is doing, he's been doing this comparison the whole time through this chapter. The despair that one should feel when God's law is laid down on them, which would humble men and women and show us our guilt. Or the despair that would come from a man or a woman, here we go, undertaking again and again man-made approaches to God or undertaking man-made approaches to stay right with God or man-made reasons why I even need God in the first place. The old covenant did and was supposed to do this, send us to Jesus Christ. If you've been alive longer than me or about my age, have you ever thought about this? If you were a Christian in the 80s, there was always those religious interests and preoccupations that were like the top two or three. And then you move over to the 90s in popular Christianity and somehow they switch and you got other religious entrants or other religious pre- preoccupations. And then in year 2000, we were all scared the dickens when, you know, 1999 was in. I wasn't partying like it was 1999. You know, I was in bed, to be quite honest with you. And then here we go with a new decade and new preoccupations. And seeking a peace through false avenues never, never come. You said, loved ones, all of our attempts to keep rules, to keep regulations, how-to lists are all man-made stuff, and all they will do is tie up us in knots and bring us to despair. And you may be this way right now. I mean, I know it's Sunday, but when Monday comes and you're honest, you may just be in a pickle all the time. You never honestly know and feel God's love for you in Jesus. So if you have a fantastic week one, it's like, all thumbs up week two blows in and you blow it what do you do despair and if you think about it luther is the example we can look to because the one question that i kept asking myself is how in the world is someone who as religious as he was someone as systematic as he was someone as devoted as he was how could that fellow be in such a place of despair how Now listen carefully, you don't think that if you prayed all the times you thought you should, and if you read the scriptures as much as you thought you should, that you would be happy and right with God, do you? Come, come now, read your Bible, consider the Pharisees. They take precious things like prayer and the study of scripture, and they make them look and feel foul. Why do they make them look and feel foul? Because there is no Christ. They were replacing those things for Christ. They were replacing religion for Christ. John 5, 39, Jesus to them. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Christ, column one, old covenant, death, condemnation, despair, Is that any of us here this morning? Now quickly to column two, the new covenant. Verse six, as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Okay, and that's our first word, new column, life. Spirit 
filled, Christ filled life. Now, when you think about life, don't think about the westernized version of the good life, you know, whatever that is. Don't do that. Pascal, the, the famous mathematician and philosopher, who my son knew who he was, said on one occasion, every human philosophy, every human religion leads to either pride or despair. Okay? Every human philosophy, every human religion leads to either pride or despair. Let's work it out. Let's, let's say if you're a very religious person, if you're a very religious person, every so often, you just can't help but tell everybody how fantastically religious you are, right? I did this this morning. I've read this thing six times. I plan on doing this afternoon. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to double that by the time 2 p.m. rolls around. And if you're like me, you just kind of recoil at this. Be like, whoa. It's like, wow, it was all I could do to read a chapter this morning. Oh. But the other side of that is I'm a very religious person, but the reason why I'm curled up in this fetal position with the blanket over my head is because no matter how much I do, no matter how much I pray, no matter how much many lists I sign up, I still can't get any satisfaction. What's that song? The, the nearer my destination, the more I keep slip sliding away. And that's a person who's just all tied up in knots. Now, do either of those life sound like a life worth living. In juxtaposition, the ministry of the new covenant, which Paul provides for us here, is a ministry that brings life. It brings Jesus' life and a ministry that brings righteousness. That's our second word. Now stay with me. Verse 9, if the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? That's the new covenant ministry. The gospel brings righteousness. This is, you know, if you're thinking, I guess, and you're honest, this is news that would set you to dance or at least maybe sing. This is Romans 3. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Oh, quickly. (laughs) But now, but now, (laughs) please answer that. (laughs) It would have to happen the first week I came back. (laughs) But now, apart from the law, the righteousness from God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. August 1st, morning and evening devotions, Charles Spurgeon on this says this, downcast and troubled Christians. Come and glean today in the broad field of Jesus' promise. Here are abundance of precious promises which exactly meet thy needs. See, poor, timid believer, the promises of Christ that lie before thee. Make them your own. Jesus bids you to take them, grasp them, thresh them out by meditation, and feed on them with joy. What is that? That is the privileges of the new covenant. And that was the thing that set Luther dancing. When he discovered this, I'm quoting from Luther again, here I felt as if I were entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through gates that had been flung open and I had entered in. Life and righteousness provided, not earned, provided and available to everyone who believes in Jesus. But you say Martin Luther believed in Jesus. No, no. He believed in a Jesus. He did not believe in the Jesus, 
Paul and the Jewish people read from the same Old Testament. One preached Christ, the other did not. The veil was over their lives. Luther was orthodox, but he wasn't converted, not yet. He was not able to rest on the righteousness of Jesus. Not rest as in getting saved and do nothing. Because Luther went to work for Christ as a love affair and not an office job. And there is a massive difference. Our freedom from the law as a way of salvation does not free us from the law as a guide to conduct. God's love for us is not on the basis of duty, but neither does his love for us free us from our duty. However, when Luther realized and kept before him that only on the strength of what Jesus has done made him righteous and made him right with God, things were massively different. I mean, if I was a teenager, I'd be like so happy that this was true. And if I was a 40-something-year-old man, I would just as more be happy that that is true since a lifelong battle with sin is something that we should expect to the very end. So congregation, when you think about righteousness, think of it this way. This is New Testament righteousness. There is a righteousness that God requires if we're ever going to be accepted by him. And it is only achieved by Jesus' death on the cross. And this achieved righteousness by Jesus' death on the cross is revealed in the story of the gospel. This is the new covenant. And what is revealed in the new covenant is given to those who genuinely believe. Again, that is New Testament righteousness always because it is at the point of belief that we can remove ourselves from the realm of death, condemnation, and despair, old covenant, to life and righteousness and hope and freedom. Hope and freedom, word three and word four. Verse 12, therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, a hope which breeds Boldness. What kind of boldness? That was my question. So I had to look in the original language and I found out that the word that Paul used there for bold has to do with language and speech. So he wasn't like arrogant. He was very bold in the new covenant message and nothing more. He had massive amounts of trust in the new covenant message so he talked to the public he gave them continually the new covenant message hope which breeds boldness which breeds the new covenant hope the bible describes us that before we were christians we were without god and we were without hope in the world the law does not do anything for us by giving us hope The the law is not a ladder to which we try to climb. The law is a mirror. It shows us our dirt. And we look at ourselves in the mirror and we try to clean ourselves. No, no, don't do that. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So that hope is assurance. It is hope that is a sure confidence That Jesus Christ is my righteousness. Not hope like I hope that it's not going to be cold here this winter. You know, flat chance that is. We all know it's going to be cold. This hope is a certainty because every time I look at my sin and look at myself, I immediately turn to Christ. Freedom. Freedom is illusion in our contemporary culture. Trust me, I've been out from the world for a couple of weeks. 
Freedom is just another word for nothing left to, to lose. The world calls out, come, come here and get this freedom. Do this. Have a few of these. Have one or two of those. Stay there for a while. And it puts its manacles of bondage on the people. And men and women's lives are chained either by patterns of the heart or by patterns of the body that undeniably say that I am unable to set myself free. Because only Jesus can do that. So when you think of freedom, don't think of freedom like, okay, I can do whatever I like now. That's what got us in the bloody mess in the first place. Listen to Walter Lippmann, quoting from Agilus Huxley. Huxley was a big-time pagan. He was mean with it. Huxley was right. A man's worst difficulties begin when he is able to do what he likes. They throw off moral restraints, but do not know what to do with the freedom they found. These are prisoners that have been released, staggering about, and they find it nerve-wracking. They find it nerve-wracking, which is why Paul said, Galatians 5, true freedom is not the freedom to do what we like, but the power to do what we ought. So you, my brothers and sisters, Paul says, we were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. And just let me close with this. Remember the quote that we read from Luther when he finally got the gospel, when he finally understood the new covenant? He said, here I felt as if I was entirely born again and it entered paradise itself through grates that had flung open and I had entered in. This is the rest of that quote. There and then. Remember now, Luther at this time is a Bible scholar. There and then, the whole Bible took on a whole new look to me. And that's my prayer for everyone in this room that needs us. Let the Bible now take a whole new look to you. Which column are you under? Death, condemnation, despair, old covenant. Life, righteousness, hope, and freedom. And if you think that there's like this veil covering your eyes and you say, I just don't get it just yet. Well, God has a promise for you in the text, doesn't he? If you turn to Jesus Christ, that veil is taken away. Well, what does it mean to turn to Jesus Christ? Well, to turn to Jesus Christ simply means this. You turn away from yourself. You turn away from your own agenda. And you turn to the will of God. The will of God under the new covenant which says Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the reason why I can be right with God. Why I can stay right with God. Why I can have life, righteousness, hope, and freedom. Because all those things in the new covenant only come one way. And only remain one way. And that is in Christ. I sure thank you for your attention. God bless you as we prepare to take communion. Elders, if you would come forward and let's have a time for a brief prayer. Our God and Father, as we prepare for the table now, we ask for your mercy and your help. We ask for thoughts that could think about these things, apply them to ourselves, and speak often about them with others. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen.